Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I serve as lead pastor here at Midtown. So glad to have you with us this morning. Um, <clears throat> every week during this time after we pray, we take an opportunity to learn from the scriptures together. And if you're new to SOMA, um, different churches do teaching and sermons different ways. But um, for us as elders, one of our primary responsibilities is to oversee the teaching ministry of the church. And so uh, from a kind of a doctrinal standpoint, we make sure that what we're teaching is consistent with Scripture and consist consistent with God's heart for us and his design for human flourishing. And, um, <clears throat> and so we, uh, we oversee that, but we also uh, have lots of different people that, that teach. And so a sermon for us is an opportunity just to interpret, apply Scripture to our everyday lives. It's really about encouragement. It's kind of uh, what you see in the New Testament is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, what you see in the New Testament is kind of... Uh, uh, exhortation, right? Encouragement and instruction from the Bible. So oftentimes that'll be an elder, but we also invite from time to time uh, men and women from our church, uh, other folks from outside of our church to come to teach scripture to us. And, uh, and that diversity, I think, is really healthy for us as a body. So this morning, we have the privilege to hear from a friend of mine. So we're kicking off a new series today called The Cross and the Christian Life. You see that on the front of your uh, worship guide if you got one of those coming in. Uh, we're going to be taking a couple weeks leading up to Lent and reflecting on uh, the cross of Christ and how that applies very practically to our lives. And so today we're going to be kicking that off uh, and then following that through with some different topics like forgiveness and identity and um, evil and suffering and endurance. And so uh, we hope that you'll join us and invite others to come alongside in this journey through Lynn as we prepare for Easter. But we have a great privilege to hear from a friend of mine, Nick Nye, uh, this morning. So Nick uh, currently lives in Columbus. Uh, he and his wife, Brittany, have four kids uh, Nick is the founding pastor of Veritas Community Church. Some of you guys are from Veritas at SOMA, have come from Columbus. Maybe you went to Ohio State or you're familiar with them. They were planted, uh, I think, in 2008 in the short north, and, uh, and Nick was there for a while. Uh, went to New York and served uh, as the lead pastor of Apostles Church in downtown, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in Midtown, Manhattan, and uh, has recently come back and is now serving uh, with a nonprofit, helping to catalyze uh, kind of a missional movement in Columbus. They host prayer gatherings, worship gatherings, where they'll have 10,000 people coming from around the city. They have some faith and work initiatives they're doing in the marketplace. It's a really neat ministry, and uh, Nick is one of the leaders in that nonprofit. And so, uh, Nick, thank you so much. Nick, is, uh, Nick has been on the board of our network of pastors at Sojourn, and is just a very gifted leader and teacher, and just one of my best friends in the world. And so, Nick, thank you for coming to uh, speak to us. So if you guys will welcome Nick as he comes to share uh, from 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, yeah, it's so good to be here with you, and um, I am incredibly grateful for Brandon and Emily and their friendship to my wife and I and to our family, and we just love hanging out, and uh, there's, just, there's just something powerful about uh, pastors um, just being able to like, have like, really deep and honest conversations about theology, but about our lives as well, and um, he has constantly just expressed deep love for this church and for you guys, and I've heard some of your names, though I don't know your faces, and um, all positive, I promise. Um, and so I'm, I'm just, I'm super thrilled to be here and to talk about the cross. Um, so let me start by just immersing ourselves in a cross-centered scripture. Now, I'm not going to um, go through this line by line, um, this, this particular passage, but I hope to kind of survey um, a bunch of verses going on in the scripture as we talk about the cross. So would you hear God's word from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. 
This is Paul. He writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, at the, at the center of everything in our personal worlds is a story. We're living in this story, whether our story um, is of the past, right, uh, of, of victories. Maybe some of you have the trophy hanging in your uh, room still of something that you did in your childhood, or failures, or absent parents, or, parents or abuse, or, or um, racism. It's also a story of the present. Where we are right now in our lives, our financial worry, marriage breakdown, our career, but it's also our future. What are we thinking about? Who will I marry? Should I move? What should I start saving money for? This story of our past and our present and our future is the lens in which we interpret everything around us. It's, it's how we look at the world and soak it into our bones and listen to it. It's how we understand. It's how we interact. How we uh, take the claims out there and make them convictions and practices in here, right? How do we listen to the news and bring it into our lives? But since we all have such different stories, such different pasts and present and future, how do we take all of that and bring it in? Well, in light of this question, uh, Joel Christensen, he's a professor at, of classical studies at Brandeis University, he wrote uh, about this thing called epistemic humility. Now, before you start tuning out and you're like, what is, what is this? Where is this guy going? Um, listen, this word uh, epistemic humility is um, that we, in our stories, we don't have the knowledge that the ancient Greek philosophers would have to judge whether something is true or not. We don't have the knowledge that uh, somebody down the street would have so we don't have all of this, so we can't judge whether a thing is true or not. Um, again, the ancient philosophers, uh, Greek philosophers might say, a wise man admits that he doesn't know what is true. It's because we are finite. We live in a sliver of time, and it's hard to know the big things going on around um, the world, the cosmic things going on in the cosmos. So when it comes to the claims and the traditions and the authorities, the order that Christianity puts in front of us, how do we take that in? How do we absorb that? Do we just say, I don't know? I, I, I can't know. How do we take the gigantic claims of God that history confirms and has changed the lives of billions of people uh, so how can we soak that into our lives so that it transforms us, so that it actually changes us? How does our identity interact with God's cosmic identity? Of course, modern philosophers today are split on whether our perceptions are able to actually understand this existential truth. Um, if these two worlds can meet, even, because there is a deep weight in both. In your story, Right? You're the judge of your own life and God's story. 
Uh, he's obviously the judge, uh, we would say, of all things. But we have this real sense, uh, these real senses like touching, seeing, hearing, taste, smell, all of those things. Our lives take in data all around, the wor- all around us all the time. We're, we're constantly thinking about how to take in uh, the dramas of life. We internalize the data. We see what sticks um, and what even makes sense to us, what feels right or what resonates with our experience, our bodies go through this process of interpretation of what we experience all around us. Yet, some of us still can't come to the same conclusion. Um, How about the blue dress or the yellow dress? Anybody remember that? 2016 throwback? Is anybody, nobody's remembering? Um, Or one of the things that basically uh, almost destroyed my marriage is Laurel versus Yanny. Remember that one? (laughs) Our eyes interpret color differently, our ears interpret sound differently, and we love this kind of stuff on social media. It's just great to have something to talk about at work that's completely dumb. Um, Now, I know you didn't come here to, like, get into this philosophical conversation um, and this lesson. Maybe some of you, your gears are turning, and you're like, yeah, what what if? How do we do this? But what I want to do today is I want to show you uh, that it, uh, show you in part that the cross, that the cross of Jesus Christ became that central piece in history where the truth of who God is, all of that came crashing down into the deepest recesses of our soul, where God's very identity crashes into our very identity, and it is the place where we can know truth. You see, I grew up in a Catholic family. My mom worked for the Catholic Church as a social worker. I was confirmed in the Catholic Church and served as an altar boy. I could recite word for word the, uh, the Mass, and sometimes I would. Sometimes for fun, that's what I would do. And my brother and I would pretend to serve the Eucharist with these disgusting things called Necco wafers. Anybody remember those things? They're so gross. We would do a communion with those. I could, I could tell you that Jesus died on the cross. I could tell you that he rose from the dead, but I can honestly say that Christianity was as far from me as a star in the night sky. It, it, it just was so distant for me. I had to have that collision. From what was out there to what was in here. And I'm absolutely sure there are some of you here today who, if you actually made an honest assessment, you could say the same thing. Maybe you grew up in religion, some kind of religious house where you could talk about the cross or you could talk about some claims about Christianity, but it's far. And you haven't experienced that collision. You know the stories even if, even if you didn't grow up in a religious home. I mean, you, you, you flip on the news. You watch The Simpsons. Maybe that's all you've got is The Simpsons. But you, you know that Jesus hasn't soaked into your blood. It's not part of your DNA. He's not, be, he's not become something more than a caricature out there. St. Paul, who wrote... Uh, this book in 1 Corinthians, a great Jewish persecutor of the church who had become the most influential pastor in the first century, he had a crashing experience like this, and like I did. 
Uh, here he is, a pastor to the Corinth church and the author of this, this letter, and he's trying to help them experience the living and true God. He's trying to help them. He's writing this so that they could get to that place where they can experience who God was. Paul saw that this church was filled with what was called Gnostics. That is these spiritual people, these people who lived in this spiritual realm. They lived in this place where they knew of things about God, and they, they could talk about God. They, it's like this arena of enlightenment mindset. Or Fleming Rutledge, who's a scholar and a pastor, she said uh, that she would call them mystery mongers. They love to dabble or maybe actually live in this spiritual knowledge. They were the smartest people in the room when it came to spiritual things. And so Paul spends a lot of this letter just trying to kick them off their high horse, right? Just to get them from uh, out here to get this stuff in here, to get who God is in here. So he does this by saying, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 7, not all possess the knowledge. He's saying, you, don't, you guys don't know everything. You don't get it all. And he even applies this to himself and personalizes. He's not just pointing the finger at them and saying, you guys are idiots. I know the truth. He's saying it himself. He says, and, and as we read, I decided to know nothing. We'll get to the rest of that. But he said, I decided to know nothing. Nothing is the gnosis, the, 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 um, the, the knowledge. This whole letter, starting with chapter 1, of course, is seeking to take all the mystery of God and making it the very fuel, the very conviction for our everyday lives. And he does this by pointing at, showing us, screaming at times. It's not just passive. It is screaming. He is pointing us to the cross of Christ. He's saying, don't stay up here, but go to the cross. The very word cross comes from the Latin word crux, which is where we get the English word crucial. And the cross is utterly crucial to understanding Christianity, to becoming a Christian. The gospel according to Matthew, actually 33% of, of, of his writing is devoted to the gospel, the final week of Jesus' life leading to the cross. Mark, 37%. Luke, 25%. John, 42%. All of these authors slow way, way down at Jesus' death on the cross so that we understand what is crucial to Christianity. I mean, there's lots that we could say about his life. There's so much goodness in the Sermon on the Mount, his teaching and his healings and all the miracles, all of that we could celebrate and rejoice in. But all these authors spend a lot of time and slow way down when it comes to the cross because they want us to see what is absolutely crucial to Christianity. In fact, if you go past the New Testament into the Old Testament, you see at the center of the Old Testament predictions shows that the Messiah would suffer. In the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we gather the centrality of suffering. In the Psalms, I'm just going to fire, rapid fire for you taking notes. In the Psalms, Psalm 22, 34, 69, 109. In the prophets, famously Isaiah 53, some of you might know that passage. It's very famous of Jesus 
um, and the suffering Messiah. Daniel 9, Zechariah 12 and 13. Jesus even refers to himself as the Son of Man who will suffer many things. And we're going to get to that more and die. But the, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 meets the Son of Man reigning in Daniel chapter 7. So there's this fascinating interaction that Jesus has with Peter in Mark chapter 8. If you don't know Peter, he's a disciple of Jesus, and he's hanging out with Jesus all the time. And so it's like they're just laying around, lounging around, and Jesus says, who do, you, who do the people say that I am? Uh, and so Jesus and Peter, they get into this little debate. So Jesus asks Peter, this kind of trying to land the plane, who do you think I am? I mean, uh, at this point, uh, Peter's like, okay, I'm going to end this conversation because it's getting weird. And he says, uh, well, you're the Christ. But Jesus isn't finished. He's not finished. He's not okay with just that answer. He's saying that's true, but there's more. He gets the cosmic. See, Peter's at the place where a lot of the Corinthians are, maybe a lot of where you are. You get the cosmic things about God. You kind of get the reality of who God is. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. He gets the spiritual knowledge, but he's not getting the earthiness, the earth, earthy, real-life God. So Jesus goes on to explain that he would suffer many things and eventually be killed and even raised from the dead. So zealous, big man Peter, he is not having that with Jesus. I mean, if you imagine the scene, Jesus goes on to explain his suffering, and Peter's like, no, 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 no. That's, uh, that's not good. Uh, he actually goes to rebuke Jesus. Um, by the way, this word rebuke here is the same word that's used for casting out a demon. So what you, do you know what Peter's doing? He's trying to cast a demon out of Jesus. Peter is all up in Jesus' business now, trying to cast this demon out, and Jesus, of course, is not having it. So you know what he does to Peter. He says, no, get behind me, Satan. Jesus actually rebukes Peter. Now pause for a second. Peter's whole life, well, let's have some compassion on him. His whole life he's been told that the Messiah would come and defeat all evil by taking the throne. He thought he and Jesus were on the same page when he said, you're the Christ. Peter's like, I thought that was it. I thought we're on the same page. You're the Messiah. But Peter didn't know that the defeat of all evil, the bridge back to God, would not come from Jesus reigning on a throne, but actually Jesus hanging on a cross. Jesus needed Peter to understand that. You want to know who I am. You want to know all that I'm about. Look not to the throne, Peter. I know you've been taught that your whole life. Don't look to the, the ruling throne. Look to the cross. All these authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Pete, Paul, all these authors and this interaction with Peter we're relaying the height of who God is. Where he is, who he is, how he will win, he's saying his identity is not on the throne, but is at the cross. Why? Why would it be there? Why there? Why associate your very essence, who you are, there? Because it is at this crucial place where God all that he is meets 
us, humanity. It's that crucial place where we, in our truest humanity, with all our senses, with our story, with our pain, with our victory, can take in the power of God and mean it more than spiritual propositions floating in the abstract. It means so much more than a cosmic God up there. It is where we come together. But still, why? Why is the cross the very identity of Jesus? Now let me get, begin by pointing out a few reasons. I know, as, as Pastor Brand said, there's, you're going to have a, a bunch of sermons unpacking this, so I'm going to start. It's like a primer. But I want to start... I want to start by getting to the, the, the first reality, and that is at the cross of Christ is where we find love. We think we know love in our society. We've defined it in a lot of different ways, and of course that definition of love changes um, as the culture changes. It's uh, it's that, what, what, is, what, is, uh, what is it supposed to be then? What is love? An, an evolution of how we feel today? Is it just kind of what we wake up and think we just feel like love being? I mean, the Beatles tell us all you need is love, right? So then what is it? But there is a way of love that is true, and there's a way of love that is fake. Now, I'm in the doctor's office. I pick up a copy of psychology today not a magazine i would normally read but they talk about my wife freaked out when i told her this i just had this whole article about divorce and why couples get divorced and um and its root causes and so i'm reading this fascinated so he's talking about this reality that there's this false love that aims to make another person fulfill your satisfaction Does that make sense? You're marrying that person or you're in love with that person because of what they can do for you. Husbands, it's like buying your wife lingerie for Christmas. Do you know what I'm saying? We know that deep down, you're not showing love to your wife. You're showing love to you. Uh, As humans, we have a tendency to show love for someone in hopes that we get something out of it, approval, arousal, power, something that, uh, that, that we can get something out of, even if it's small. And that is not authentic love. And he, this article is saying that when you live in that, you are, are constantly going to be disappointed, and ultimately that's the ultimate cause of divorce. But then there's true love. True love is giving yourself fully to the needs and the desires of the other person because your purest desire is to fulfill them. You give to them everything, regardless if they give anything back. No conditions, no reciprocation, just overwhelming them for their own sake. Now, if this idea is true false love and true love, then if every, and every person in, in here would undoubtedly fall into the false love category nearly 100% of the time. That's why divorce is so rampant, because we can't give true love. We might act it out uh, in small ways or for a season, but if we're honest, we are always expecting a little reciprocation, 
we're expecting something in return, a thank you. We, we never are pure in just saying, I'm giving my love away without any, any, any idea of getting it back. So we are worn out. We're exhausted because our love is not being reciprocated. And so we hook in just a little condition into all of our love. So because of this, because of this, we are all walking around experiencing a deep depravity of true love. Aren't we? We are all walking around with this depravity, this, this hole in our heart of, for true love to experience what that's really like. What we've kind of got in our spouse maybe or a, a, a really close friend or a parent but we've never experienced in its fullness someone to love us just because they love us. So here again is Jesus. So drawn to identify with the cross because as the song goes, what wondrous love is this, O oh my soul, O oh my soul, that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul. The writer of Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that it was his joy to endure the cross, despise the shame. Why? What did he get out of it? What, did he, what could he possibly get out of it give him joy? Here's where true love comes to life. He got you. In Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45, Jesus tells us he came to serve and not be served. He came to give his life as a ransom to many. He gave everything. He gave his life for you with absolutely no conditions. Now, can we go back to Peter for a second? Remember the story of Peter and Jesus? Peter needed Satan casted out of him because Satan wants to block this love with every ounce of his being. He wants you to keep going back to your spouse, keep going back to your parent, keep going back to your hobbies, keep going back to your friend, keep going back to your kid, whatever. He wants you to go there. He wants you to go to those places. So he wants to block this love. This love is the core to Jesus' identity, who he is. Is it's a fully realized experience of love that we couldn't experience anywhere else in this world. He gave himself fully unto death to you at the cross, and that is, the, that is love. The second reason the cross is Jesus' identity is redemption. Now, I, I'm just going to say this is love in action. This is love with handles. Redemption comes from the Latin word buy back. It's where God, the God-man, Jesus, is at the cash register paying humanity's debts. Humanity is failing. I mean, it's pretty easy to see. Most people don't argue with this, especially if you watch the news. We are failing. We're failing our planet with pollution and overproduction. We're failing our world with wars and political corruption. We're failing one another with broken families and abusive, fam abuse, abusive relationships. We're failing ourselves with unmet expectations and doing what we don't want to do and not doing what we do want to do. Humanity is always going in a downward trajectory. 
Now, not long ago, I started, um, I, I was, got in my uh, van, and there was a terrible smell coming from my van, which is not unusual because I have four children. So I decided it's time to clean this baby out, clean it out. What do I find under the seat? But a bunch of chicken nuggets stowed under there. Anybody ever been there, right? Despite the abundance of chemicals that are, I know are in these chicken nuggets, um, I mean, Wendy's pumps them in, right? Um, they did not get better just sitting there. They didn't get fresher. No, they, they decay. They molded. They were rotting. It's like thermodynamics, I'm, I'm told, right? Um, things go down, and the Bible calls that sin. Things go down because you and I see sin at work. We, we feel sin at work in our own lives. We need delivered from this effect. We need like a reverse of that. And so Paul writes in Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood. It's at the cross of Christ that Jesus buys back our death, our decay, our sin. The cross liberates us from divine wrath. The cross frees us from slavery of sin, of guilt and, and shame and fear. The cross unleashes, unleashes us from the possibility, the impossible burden of law-keeping, of trying to pick up ourselves up by our own bootstraps. The cross is the answer to our sin. So he pays the debt. He pays um, the debt with his own life. God gave his very best, the highest and most perfect cost, his son Jesus Christ. As one of the great theologians, St. Augustine, stated, this way whereby God designed to liberate us through the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus was both good and befitting the divine dignity. There was no other way more fitting and no other needed for healing our misery. God so identifies himself with the cross because it is the place where he meets we. It's where we meet true love. It's where we meet a redemption that can actually buy us back from the depths of our sin and despair. So let me conclude with a call that Jesus himself gives. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Now listen, for the cosmic creator, the sovereign king, puts his very self at the center of the cross so that you can find your very self. Jesus identifies with the cross because he wants you to identify with the cross. You may or may not know this, but all around you, you and I, both of us, there is a dogma, this religion, this marketing that preaches at us this. If you achieve money, if you achieve a certain look, if you achieve status, this spouse, this house, these kids that, that behave in this way, then you will be somebody. You'll feel valuable. You'll feel true love. You'll feel redeemed. 
When you build yourself, your identity on those things or anything like it, when those things begin to crack, break down, crash altogether, so will you. So Jesus gives us an invitation to find a whole new self. He wants you to lose the old self. Why? Because he's no fun, cosmic killjoy, just doesn't want you to, he wants you to be to prude and not enjoy things in this world, that kind of thing. No. Look again at Mark 8. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's interesting, that little bonus, and the gospels. What does that mean? What does that little bonus statement, and the gospels, mean? It means the cross, at the cross, Jesus loses everything for you. When you look at the gospel, the good news for you, you see the cosmic creator losing his very identity at the cross. He loses his kingdom. He loses his status. You remember on his throne, there's angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're singing this to him all the time. He loses it all right there at the cross. All so that you could have true identity. And you cannot find this identity, this new identity, without Christ on the cross. The cross is where he loses his identity so that you could gain yours. Knox Chamberlain wisely stated, the Spirit does not take his people beyond the cross, but ever more deeply into it. So I'll end where I started. We all have these lives. Plans for lunch today? Maybe some of you are like, oh, yeah, that's what I'm thinking about, right? Work tomorrow, you got to catch up, you got to do stuff. Mind drifting, um, in and out, even right now. How do we take the cosmic creator, all that God is, that created the whole world for all time and all of that, how do we take all of that, all that is holy, and find it in us today? By losing your life at the cross just where Jesus did. So my invitation for you today is to lose your life at the cross. What this means is it takes surrender. It takes confession. This takes uh, you personally asking God to buy back your soul. Buy you back. If you've never done that, will you consider it today? Will you step away from the spiritual enlightenment of knowledge of God and look to the cross where Jesus emptied himself of everything, where God let it all go? He let his identity go so that you could find yours. Will you empty yourself with him? It's there at that empty place where Jesus gives true life, true identity. Today might be the day where it finally crashes, and it clicks, where the God of all history and presence meets you where you are. Let's, let's just ask him to do that work right now.
Lord, we know, even in 1 Corinthians 2, that this is a work of the Spirit, that this is something that's so hard for us to imagine or just to make happen. So we come asking for you to make you collide with us. And we know it is at the cross, and we know that it is where you identify and where you call us to. So I pray, Father, that those in this room right now who don't know you, who haven't had that experience with you beyond just a, a simple head nod or a knowledge or a caricature of you, I pray, Lord, that you would push them to the cross and meet them there. They might find new life. Even now, would you be filling their heart with a sense of new life, a sense of new purpose, a sense of new identity, a sense of joy and of hope in this that is beyond anything this world can give, that is a love that they've always craved and been looking for, that is a redemption that they've always sought to find in all, the other, all these other places. God, would you give it to them now? In Jesus' name, amen.